are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think you're ready. <laughs> okay, here we go. episode 72 where we always discuss the latest nebraska issues i'm stephanie and here with me today as always are april and melody hi ladies how's it going hey my hair looks awesome <laughs> oh your hair does look awesome that is faux show here <laughs> stephanie has got some like she's got her headphones on and then there's just wisps like giving her this like angelic halo look and it's a good look. I'm I don't interested. know if that's what you I was You all calling. don't have to go to work with masks. You don't know how many times I walk in the bathroom and I'm like, oh, look at my <laughs> hair sticking out of my mask. I stand in front of people all day. Oh, my God. They all, But to be fair, they also look like that. So probably. You know, <laughs> it's, right, right. it's all fine. Probably. Did um, you have a good weekend? I did. But did you guys know it was the Olympics this weekend? What did I you did. I made a display started? at the library. Of course. Oh, you the, librarians are the best people on earth. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Uh, yeah. So I read my Sunday paper like I do. And then my aunt sends in the family text message chat was like, are you guys watching the Olympics right now? And then she sends some article about some ice skater doing something incredible. I don't know. And I realized like I just read the newspaper. They did not talk about the Olympics. <laughs> Are they on a ban this year? Like, what is going on with the Olympics? Why don't? Why aren't we knowing about it? I thought that was really weird. That's weird. But isn't the U.S. government doing some official kind of snub because they're mad like, at China for all their terrible things? I think there. Are, I mean, I don't think there are horrible yeah. human rights atrocities happening yeah. in China all over I the whole planet. We didn't care in when it was in Beijing, right? For, so I don't know why we care now, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. I just was really surprised the first time the I was surprised to find out an Olympics was happening. I mean, let's face it: Winter Olympics are not as awesome as summer. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, the ice skating is really ice amazing. Skating. I do love and that. I part. like it. I and just am very sled. biased towards the summer Olympics. <laughs> the winter olympics brings out the weird stuff that's true it's like people are bored in canada and they're like i wonder what we could do in the snow (laughs) and then they just make up a sport (laughs) there was a really funny meme today it's a picture of the i think it's the u.s curling team and it showed them winning and it says it looks like the the u.s curling team looks like a group of dads who went out for a beer and accidentally found themselves in the middle of the olympics Yes, that is what the Winter Olympics vibe is. And then, of course, I have, I have not seen this movie since it came out. So my guess is it has not aged well. But it also makes me think of the Jamaican bobsled movie that came out a really long time ago when I watched cool it as a runnings. kid. Cool Runnings. Yes, that's the one. I don't know how well it's aged, but I'm sure not well. I'm sure <laughs> none of those movies have aged well. Movies uh, don't age well. Mm. Once I watched, I watched a Pepe Le Pew 
cartoon mm-hmm. with my toddler. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, these were so cute. And then I went to watch it and I was like, oh, he's a rapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was trying to explain somebody's outfit and I was like, oh, it's a wife beater in overalls. And I was like, and then my eight year old's like, what's a wife beater? And I'm like, oh, raised oh. in the age well. No. Oh. You know what I don't like? Garfield. <laughs> He's right. all fat shame, fat shame, fat shame. Oh. Fat jokes are not funny. Mm-mm. My I daughter mean, picked one up and I was like, oh. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a it's a problem. Um, so I like some of those movies I just don't I'm not gonna revisit them and just but like in at the time, like we all loved that movie. Jamaicans in the snow, you know. Mm-hmm. Love it. So, okay, we have, first of all, I want to, there was like a really big, hot mess of a situation that happened in Lincoln with a gun showing up at a school. Mm. I really don't want to talk about that today. (laughs) Can we talk about that next week? And then instead, what I want to talk about is this most amazing woman advocate that is leaving Lincoln. And I really want to talk about that. And I don't want to like leap into her interview feeling mad. Can we bump it to next week? Do you think that's fair to our listeners? Listeners, what do you think? Is it fair? Fair. Yes, Mildred. (laughs) They said it was fair, guys. Let's like, let's bring in Anne. I'm still processing that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really excited tonight. We have Anne Hunter-Purtle. She's a native of Lincoln, Nebraska, and a proud graduate of Lincoln Public Schools and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She holds a BA in political science and French and a master's in agricultural economics. I like this combination. Um, She (laughs) served as Stanford Schools Executive Director since 2016 prior to founding Stanford Schools and spent five years in Washington, D.C., working at the U.S. Senate, the White House, and the Environmental Protection Agency. Anne's passionate about preserving and strengthening Nebraska's public schools so that future generations of Nebraskans can enjoy the opportunities she received. Hi, Anne. So nice to have you. Hi. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. How was your weekend? It's pretty good. You know, it was pretty chill. My partner's birthday was this weekend. So we got to oh. celebrate with some friends and family, which was nice. Hey. <laughs> Um, so I want to say one thing about um, Anne's partner. I am on their Christmas card list and I got their Christmas card <laughs> and it is Anne's partner like with like a little bulge in their sweater and then there's like a comment it's like a food baby they're like we're expecting a food baby and it was <laughs> the best Christmas card ever. It was so funny. It was so funny. That's Jeff's sense of humor. Um, <laughs> all of the creativity for those cards is from him. <laughs> Hilarious. So hat tip to that Christmas card. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and tell us a little bit about, okay, so we get this high level bio. You grow up in Lincoln, Nebraska, I assume, because you went to Lincoln Public Schools. Mm-hmm. And then Lincoln East kid. Lincoln East, okay, and mm-hmm. elementary school? Um, I started at Holmes and then went to Maxie Elementary when that opened as a mm. third grader. I went over there, I think it was 95 that that building opened. Um, middle school at Lux, and then, yeah, East High. Love it. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so then you go to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and then, like, how do you end up 
in D.C. and working in the Senate? And then why do you come back? Like, walk me through this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great question. So I I had always been interested in in politics from the time I was I was 13 years old in 2000 and and Bush v Gore really sort of like I don't know why but it really sort of sparked my interest um, and that was the first you know presidential election I really remember and it was so crazy and um, from that age I was I, I was like I want to work in politics um, and so I did study political science at UNL and then. Um, was just applying for internships. So I started as an intern in Ben Nelson's office um, in DC in the summer of 2011. While I was there, I found out that I had been accepted for a White House internship in in the fall. Um, And I did not expect that. I had already been turned down twice (laughs) for a White House internship. I applied three times and, and got it on the third time. And I was ready to give up at that point, right? It was like, after that third application, I was ready to be like, all right, this isn't going to happen and kind of move on. But- um, Who was president at the time? Obama. Obama's mm-hmm. administration. Okay. Yep. So, um, so I was midway through a master's at UNL and um, ended up putting school on hold. Um, thought it was going to be for a semester to, to do this um, White House internship. And it was amazing. And I ended up getting a job at the White House thereafter. Um, I was at the Council on Environmental Quality, um, and I was getting to work on land and water conservation policy. So national parks, national monuments, oceans, fires, floods, um, BP oil spill was sort of in my boss's purview. And I was getting to, you know, support a more senior official working on all this stuff and and just learn. Um, And it was really amazing. So I was there for about two years. And then because I was already halfway done with a master's at UNL, it was like going to be easier and less expensive, certainly to finish that master's and to start restart a degree somewhere else. So I came back to Nebraska briefly in 2013, I think it was. Yeah. And, and finished the second year of that master's and then left again in 2014 um, and went to work at the EPA as a, a speechwriter to the head of the agency. So during my time in D.C., I was there about five years in total, but I, was, I wasn't away from Nebraska very long, you know, really only a couple years at a time. And, um, and I, I loved my time in speechwriting um, and I loved EPA. Uh, and I loved getting to work on um, climate change. Um, but I realized not too long into that job that I really wanted to be able to use my own voice rather than shaping someone else's voice. And so I was kind of on the lookout for an opportunity to do that um, it, as far as what I would do next. But I re- that was really all the direction that I had. <laughs> and then in early 2016, um, I was in D.C. still. And I was reading in the Journal Star online about the governor starting to make noise about school privatization in Nebraska, charter schools, vouchers, and so on. Um, That made me mad for two reasons. One, because I got an excellent public school education in Nebraska, and it was enabling me to do what I wanted to do in the world. And I didn't like seeing that threatened. And two, my parents are both public school educators, and I know not only how hard they work, but, um, but how much they believe in every kid's potential. <laughs> and 
the way that um, the governor was selling these policies was just not um, not truthful and not not um, you know characterizing public schools in a in a truthful light. And so I got mad. <laughs> I wrote an opinion piece in the Journal Star um, opposing school privatization in Nebraska. And I kind of thought that would be that. It was like, okay, well, I did something, you know, that's that. I, I wrote my piece and um, was actually contacted by some folks in Omaha doing some similar work. And um, they offered to put me in touch um, with some local foundations. And one thing led to another. And within a few months, in mid-2016, um, I moved home to Nebraska to start Stanford School. So that's how that all came together. That's amazing. Like one letter to the editor and then boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Dang. It was wild. Could not have predicted how that was going to go and, and got, you know, extremely lucky with that for sure. But I've loved the work and it's been, it's been an awesome five and a half years. Well, I would say, I think those of us working in education got extremely lucky to have you and your group since 2016. That's very kind so then- of what is stand for schools? What does yeah. it do? What, yeah. you know, Submission. why did it, what, and why didn't, why wasn't, did you replace or go parallel to work that was already happening? Or is this new work that wasn't happening before 2016? That's a great question. So, so stand for schools is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to advance public education in Nebraska, plain and simple. And what that means to us is really sort of two buckets of policy work. We support policies that would um, help public schools serve all students better. And we oppose policies that would weaken public schools, weaken their ability to serve diverse students, um, and that would take funding away from them, such as school privatization. Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways, this wasn't new work. Um, There are a number of education organizations in the state that were pre-existing and that we still work closely with. Um, the Nebraska State Education Association Teachers Union, uh, the Nebraska Council of School Administrators, the Nebraska Association of School Boards, all work hard to, um, to make sure that public education is protected. I would say the difference um, and maybe the, the extra kind of ingredient with Stand for Schools is that we are an organization that's able to represent really the idea and the ideals of public education broadly without um, advocating for any particular school district, any size of school, any, um, any particular um, aspect of the profession. Um, we're able to just really focus on the broad picture of public education. And that's something that all of these other organizations definitely care about and definitely work hard on, but they also have other stuff that they have to focus on, which is, you know, part of their mission and totally legit and, and, and understandable. Um, and so I think that's the, the special thing about Stanford schools and, and something that I'm really proud of. The only thing so even close to similar that I can think of in terms of advocacy even then it's different, is um, Nebraska loves public schools, but they're really about raising up the story, the narratives, but they don't do the, I don't know if lobbying is the right word. What word would you use for what stands for school does? I would use advocacy and policy input. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, Nebraska's public schools does incredible work, and I think they really help showcase 
some of the good things happening in public schools in Nebraska. But yeah, there was this need um, in 2016 for this, this policy piece. And that's kind of the, the role that we came to fill. Yeah, it's wonderful. So what you kind of said that there, there, there's been these broad threats to public schools and that you think Nebraska has great schools. And those threats continue. What are some of the threats to public schools that you're tracking and concerned about right now in Nebraska? Yeah, yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, the short version is fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. Sure. So a lot of this stuff has a, has a long history. And so it's sort of a question of how far back we want to look. But what I'll say is that the roots of school privatization really lie in avoiding desegregation, period, full stop. So mm-hmm. school vouchers were invented by the economist Milton Friedman months after the Brown versus the Board decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954. Um I did not know that. That is new information. It is not surprising to me that getting rid of an amazing free education for every child in the community um, has its roots in racism and white flight. Um, That does not surprise me to learn that. That is is a fact I did not know. Yeah. and, And in fact, across the country, particularly the South, but not just the South, in the months and years following the Brown decision, um, there were efforts by um, white parents, frankly, to form um, academies, so-called private schools, that would not be subject to integration policies like district schools would be. And so um, that was, I mean, that that those efforts have a long history and um, you know, there are many books written on the subject. Um, And, and yeah, I mean, it, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the origins of this, of this stuff. Um, So fast forward to the eighties, the Reagan administration in 1983, I believe it was put out a report titled a nation at risk. And the, the, point of this report was to say that, you know, um, America's public schools are falling behind globally, putting us at risk in the Cold War. Our kids can't keep pace <laughs> with the Russians um, and with kids in other countries. And it called for, it really did raise a lot of alarm bells, even in, in Nebraska. The legislature at the time took some steps um, in response to that report in particular. But um There's a a good amount of um, information to show now that the authors of that report really sort of decided on their conclusions ahead of time and then cherry picked data to support those conclusions. Um, You know, they decided what message they wanted to send first and then and then found ways to to support it. And so that report was used as um, fuel for sort of the deregulation fire. Right. And so in the Reagan and even into the Clinton era, I think both parties were very interested in um, finding ways around or to privatize or break up public goods, right? Um, There was a ton of interest in that across many industries. And one way to do that, that that came to fruition in the late 80s was charter school um, in the education field. And so a charter school is... um, 
a school that is publicly funded with tax dollars, but is privately run. So instead of having an elected school board, they have a private board of directors. Depending on the state, um, it can take the format of a, uh, a for-profit or a non-profit organization. But either way, there are typically no safeguards around what they can pay their administrators. Typically, their teachers are non-unionized, so their teachers make less money while their administrators make more. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. these things, along with vouchers, really open the door to waste, fraud, and abuse of taxpayer dollars because these private entities do not have the same safeguards around how they have to document um, how they're spending money. And in, in state after state, we've seen these policies um, you know, really make a huge dent in public school funding. What often happens, and we're seeing this in Nebraska now, um, often these these programs or vouchers or scholarship tax credits um, are introduced at pretty low funding levels, like five or $10 million a year, which out of a whole state budget is not that much. But they balloon over time. So we'll, we'll talk in a little more depth, I think, uh, and a little bit about scholarship tax credits in particular, but I just want to plant that seed that mm-hmm. um, states like Ohio and Arizona have seen programs like this or have seen vouchers balloon to hundreds of millions of dollars a year or more in a way that that really does significantly cut into public school funding. There's no way for it not to. Right, because I'm going to say real quick, you're running two parallel systems. Right. You're not going to have two departments yep. of roads. You're right. not going to have two... <laughs> You're not going to have two police departments in one town. What the right. heck? No. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. So I think all of that, you know, everything that I've talked about so far is kind of the backdrop. And now the pandemic hit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, um, public schools, but all schools, I mean, every, every sector of our economy is struggling. Schools are struggling along, along with everyone else. Um, and you know, these times are really hard on kids and families, and they're really hard on teachers, um, and they're really hard on administrators. And so um, the ways in which public schools have um, persevered and and struggled and done their best to meet these challenges, I think there's a way to think about this stuff that, that makes that a really inspiring story. But that's not the version of events that we're hearing. We're hearing about how everything is on fire and everything is, you know, um, really, really hard right now. And, and it is hard. Um, I don't want to minimize that at all. But the folks that were interested in um, privatizing public education before the pandemic have really seized on recent events as a way to, to highlight the ways in which schools are struggling and to make the case that they should be defunded and broken up. So that's that's sort of the new version of what we're seeing now is some additional policies proposed in response to to the pandemic situation. It's it makes me so angry because obviously we know we have this really great foundation in public schools and so many of us, you know, I think everyone on this podcast right now has like went through public schools, probably nearly all the listeners have, you know, we know there's a lot of good in there. And so if we saw some things crumbling, when we know, we know we're doing, there's the build back better. That's just like passing (laughs) Congress. Right. And they're like, we haven't invested in any infrastructure in approximately 40 to 60 years. 
Wait. So, like, we need roads. We need bridges. We need, obviously, schools are included in public infrastructure. The The solution mm-hmm. is not pull back more money. The solution is push more money in and fix your infrastructure problems. Like, Absolutely. It, and I... It's not genuine to just carve them out as the only public thing that didn't get a, you know, they're not getting appropriately funded, like everything else in the nation, right? Like, right. and they deserve it, like That's everything right. else in the nation. That's right. And, you know, schools have gotten a, a good amount of COVID relief funding in, in each of the three, you know, major um, stimulus packages that have gone through Congress, but that money is all temporary. And it's all, it has to be spent on basically direct pandemic response in one way or another, whether that has to do with making up for um, unfinished learning or whether it has to do with, you know, retrofitting buildings to make them um, better ventilated and better to handle, you know, better able to handle COVID in the future. Those funds have to be spent by, I believe it's the end of 2024. Pretty, pretty fast. Yes. Which for a lot of districts is not enough time to, um, address the long-term challenges that we know are coming. You know, student mental health has taken a huge toll. Educator mental health has taken a huge hit. Um, And these are um, challenges that are not going to be fixed in the next year or two. Some of these consequences, um, because we're talking about human beings, are going to be years long, if not lifelong. (laughs) And um, the way that, you know, we respond to that has to be long-term as well. And so um, what I want folks to understand is like, yes, uh, public schools and, and even in the earlier um, versions of the stimulus, private schools got a good amount of, of COVID relief funding, but that is on top of decades of underfunding by mm-hmm. states, um, particularly Nebraska. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We consistently rank 49th in the country for state level investment in public K-12 education. Um, We rely extremely heavily on local property taxes to fund our public schools, which um, both, you know, uh, makes uh, landowners in this state not very happy, but also exacerbates existing inequities, right? Because Mm -hmm. um, property taxes are higher, can be higher in places where there's more to tax (laughs) in wealthier areas. And in districts that have less, less wealth, um, you know, the, the level of education that they're able to provide based on the money they're able to raise from their property tax base is less. And so there are lots of reasons to be interested in relying less heavily on property taxes in this state. Um, but to do that, we would need to turn to sales or income taxes because those are, those are the alternate sources of funding available. Otherwise, the quality of education suffers. So that is a continual debate in the legislature. Um, yeah, go ahead. I want to put you uh, on the people. spot real quick because despite yeah. the fact that we are very low in state funding, mm-hmm. how do Nebraska schools typically perform? Yes, thank you for that, April. <laughs> really well. I mean, in, in just about any in just about any measure that you want to look at um, across the country, Nebraska schools are, are typically in the top 10 to 15 states, um, whether you're looking at, you know, third grade, eighth grade, 11th grade, reading, math, um, whatever it is, uh, Nebraska schools perform very well. And so I think taxpayers here are getting a lot for their dollars. Um, and 
generally, uh, you know, horse public schools aren't perfect. Of course, there are ways that, that they can and need to be better. Um, it's just like anything. But, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, Nebraska public schools perform incredibly well. And a lot of the talk of privatization is a non-solution in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes it's hard. I mean, our listener, we're a Nebraska-based show anyway. And yeah. our listeners, of course, are, I'm sure, exclusively in Nebraska. And <laughs> I don't know. I've lived my whole life in the Midwest. And mm-hmm. I grew up in schools in Iowa, which were very good, but there's been some trouble in Iowa. And then mm-hmm. I've taught here and um, it hasn't, it's hard to imagine what it is like other places if you can't have really detailed conversations with people. So like, of course, I've learned through union people I've met, I've traveled with the union, I've gone to conferences, I've done a myriad of of things um but I even might have learned the most from one of my friends who has lived in Texas Seattle and now North Carolina and Mm -hmm. I am constantly shocked (laughs) and she's living in wealthy areas and the problems and confusion the charter schools start and the I have to say, like, I have a, a student who's a special ed student, um, and not everything is great all the time. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always room for improvement, but I am shocked at the state of special ed outside of this state. Shocked. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. my friend had to hire an advocate for like a thousand dollars a pop just because they wouldn't put him in an appropriate. Oh my gosh. And so yeah. we, I just think like, there's so much to protect in Nebraska that it could really go sideways really quick. Yeah. And it will, because that is what happens in other states where they have allowed charters, where they have underfunded, where they have brought in, you know, too many legislators who aren't pro school public schools. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to say there. I think one of the things, one of the reasons that Nebraska schools perform as well as they do relative to others nationally is because Nebraska has let some of the worst ideas in education reform in the last 20 mm-hmm. years pass us by, right? Mm-hmm. Which which has included not only saying no to privatization but also not engaging in high stakes testing in the same way that many states do. High stakes meaning that teacher salaries and um, employment depend on student test scores. Um, Tests are a measure of where students are, um, arguably, I think at their best, (laughs) that is is their intended purpose. They are not intended to be used as a as, as the the end all be all um, measure of a teacher's ability mm-hmm. um, or quality, um, and so um, you know, again, I don't a, a two, go ahead. I don't know. I when I think about it, I wasn't in Nebraska when a lot of that ha- started. Right, like mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. became a teacher shortly after Nickleby and stuff. No mm-hmm. child left behind, but. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not necessarily giving Nebraska too much credit because I don't know that they passed it up late because they were so forward thinking and knowing how bad it would be. I think in some ways, Nebraska is just kind of slow and not quick to change. But in this case, it saved us from some stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think this is something like people have undervalued and now maybe we're reflecting and starting to value the conservative nature that like true, like we don't run towards progressive liberal ideals. We don't Mm -hmm. run to things on the really conservative hot button ideas. Like we just, we just run the middle and we're like, I don't know. Let me think about it. Let me see how it goes in 27 other States first. Well, maybe that's not enough. Let me get a little bit more. Let's go a little (laughs) slower. And then things that are terrible, we don't end up doing. And there's some good things we also don't end up doing, but on the whole, I think our state has fared really well through some pretty nasty political trends. And absolutely. I I totally agree with that melody. I think that's a, I think that's um, a good definition of what conservatism can be and what it can do is a healthy skepticism toward, you know, shiny new objects <laughs> and, and ideas. And yeah, really just by kind of waiting it out, we've thus far let some of the worst of this pass us by. Um, and, and in this case, I think that's been a really good thing. Well, I mean, it just, so many of these things were enacted around the country without any proof of efficacy anyway. So it right. was, it was smart to not hop on the bandwagon. I just don't know <laughs> in my own experience, if that was how forward thinking Nebraska was. Oh, yeah, I it agree. was a little bit of luck. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with Melody on this, April. I think it was, I think, you know, it was sort of a conservative let's wait and see type of mindset. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in this instance, um, when so many of these policies have been disastrous, so many other places, it's served us really well. I'd like to give just a couple examples of what I mean when I say it's been disastrous, because I, I want people to understand mm-hmm. what, what that has looked like in many places. So um, one example is, is Ohio. In about 2015, um, the state auditor of Ohio sent in representatives of his office into a number of charter schools in their state to actually count the number of students in attendance on any given day. And it turned out that not in one or two, but in hundreds of charter schools across Ohio, there were a third to half as many students as had been reported to the state. And the other two thirds to half of these students did not exist. So we're talking about tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of state and federal funding that went to these schools Presumably, they ended up lining administrators' pockets um, in a lot of cases. Sounds like um, fraud. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's precisely fraud. But it's money that the public school students of Ohio will never get back, right? Mm-hmm. It's money that was siphoned away from public education in Ohio that doesn't, that doesn't come back to, to educate the same kids. Every kid only gets one shot, <laughs> right? Um, in Arizona, similar deal. They have a scholarship tax credit program in addition to several voucher programs and charter schools in Arizona, um, but their scholarship tax credits alone um, cost well over $500 million a year. Um, And that is money that, again, their their public schools are missing out on every day. Um, Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin was sort of the testing ground for vouchers in the late 80s and early 90s. 
And that has really hollowed out Milwaukee public schools, along with many other school districts in their state. Um, again, you're looking at many, many millions of dollars going to vouchers to send kids to private schools that do a worse job of educating kids than public schools do. And particularly, this is true in many states, but it's certainly true in Wisconsin, um, students who leave public school to attend a private school on a voucher um, do worse than their public school peers, um, mm -hmm. in, particularly in math, um, within a year. Um, and what has happened in many states is that when this money becomes available to private schools, it's not just the existing private schools that take advantage of it. Um, there are these sort of fly-by-night, low-quality private schools that pop up to take advantage of this money. They pay their teachers terribly. Um, they often hire teachers who are not fully certified because they don't have to be certified. And um, they're not doing a good job of educating kids. But and they won't let them unionize to improve right. conditions. And exactly. Um, and so I, I think what's important for people to know is that not only are, are these policies taking funding away from public schools, they don't work. <laughs> They're not providing right. a better education than public schools. I think if they were doing a better job, that would be one thing and it would be a different policy conversation, but they're not doing better. If anything, they're doing worse in many states. And so, um, again, like I said, this is a, a series of non-solutions largely in search of a problem in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So I think that leads us really well. Tell us about a couple of Nebraska bills that have been introduced that you're concerned about that our listeners should know about? Yeah, so LB 1237 is one um, that has a hearing coming up this week, actually. It'll be Wednesday, February 9th in the Revenue Committee at 1.30 p.m. Um, and wait, real Capitol. quick, people have to get their testimony or their written online thing in by... By noon the day before. So noon so before on Tuesday, noon Tuesday. Okay. Yes. Yep. Um, and they can do that by um, going to the legislature's website, searching for LB 1237, and then there's a button that says submit comment on LB 1237, and they can they can fill that in and, and submit it. So This episode might not be out before Tuesday, I just realized. But anyway. Oh, it's, <laughs> we'll it's <see>. fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, you know, this is a bill that has a hearing coming up. So this is a scholarship tax credit bill. We've seen several versions of a very similar bill in the last few years. Um, in fact, the legislature debated and did not advance um, an almost identical version just a month ago. Um, so <laughs> the, <laughs> the entire body debated this bill for eight hours. It did not advance. And there's a new version that's already back. So um, basically what this bill would do is it would let donors to private school scholarship programs um, get a 50% tax credit on their donation um, instead of paying up to half their income taxes. And so there's a couple problems with that. One, we don't treat any other type of charitable giving that way in Nebraska. If you donate to your church or a homeless shelter or a food bank or to cancer research, you get a small charitable deduction on your state and federal taxes, but you don't get a 50% credit. So we're talking up to thousands more dollars donating to private school scholarship funds 
than any other type of charitable giving in the state. So that's one problem. And the other problem is that you have to have money to give money in this way, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're allowing or what we're encouraging under this bill is for wealthy people to um, engage in this one type of charitable giving instead of paying their income taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't let people choose where their income taxes go, right? If, if we could choose, I would have some thoughts <laughs> about how my income is were spent. <laughs> right? Also have thoughts. Have yeah, so right? many thoughts. Right? Um, but, you know, we don't get to make that, that distinction. Um, and in this bill, LB 1237 would carve out, again, this, this one type of um, special exception for charitable giving in a way that benefits private schools exclusively. On the student side, the problem with this bill is that just because a student is eligible for a scholarship does not mean a private school has to take them. <laughs> and mm. in fact, the private school is able to continue to discriminate in almost any way that they want to um, against students. So there are some loose protections in the bill against race-based discrimination, but that's it. So any other personal characteristic, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, special ed needs, they feel like they can't meet. Absolutely. Um, English language learner status, anything about the student or their family, um, the Mm -hmm. the private school can discriminate and still get this taxpayer money. Um, And it's, it's then $5 million a year that is not available for in the general fund budget for whether it's public schools, public safety, healthcare, other state priorities. Um, and, and on top of all of that, um, tax credits like these are not effective in other states, meaning that um, students are not performing better <laughs> if they leave public school using a tax credit scholarship. If anything, their academic performance suffers. And so we're not doing kids or families favors um, by by spending state dollars this way unfortunately mm-hmm. so that's it actually LB sounds like, so it actually sounds like we hurt children we yes and their educational yes. outcomes yes yes um, and it's because there are these other ideological underpinnings for the folks that are designing these policies right and mm-hmm. that's not to say I mean there are certainly parents who are frustrated with public schools for good reason, right? Uh, I want to acknowledge that. And public schools, of course, are not perfect. Um, But that said, from a policy standpoint, what we have to look at is what works at scale and what works the best for the most kids. Um, And in this case, the answer is super clear. It's public schools. Um, public schools have work to do to be more inclusive and to offer more um, options of different kinds of, uh, of education within public school settings. Um, but again and again, in state after state, um, these, these policies do not improve educational outcomes. And that's something I want people to understand. All right. Is there, are there any other bills or that you want to point um, out right now or no? I'll just note one other one for right now. Um, LB 1077 from Senator Ben Hansen is a educational censorship bill. I don't think it contains the the term critical race theory, but that is the sort of panic that it's responding to, certainly. Um, And it would um, create penalties not only on K-12 schools, but post-secondary institutions 
for teaching ideas that are very vaguely deemed quote controversial in the bill. Um, and you know, that's, that's not a real standard. <laughs> we all know it's not a real standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know that one of the purposes of education is to challenge the way that folks think and, um, critical thinking is, I think one of the, um, most important outcomes of a successful education, um, of any kind. Well, this is another case of where we've seen this happen in other states very recently, yeah. and now they're throwing books off the shelves and they're telling teachers to teach both sides of the Holocaust. We're not right. going to do that. We're just not no. going to do that. No, no, because there, there is no both sides being the Holocaust no. Or, no. or any atrocity of that, of that kind. Um, there are so many issues that um, need to be taught honestly, and, and I think so much of American history is um, not to be repeated. And the only way to avoid repeating it is to know it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, well, so so I, don't- I think it's, I, just, I don't, I have, my family history is all in the South. Mm-hmm. And we came to Nebraska because my dad was in the Air Force. And one of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence, Charles Carrollton of South Carolina. And slave owner, right? Like, it, it is appropriate to know who your ancestors are. And it is appropriate to say that's not who I am. Like, we can do both things. And this inability in the public square to have these conversations that evoke big emotions and be able to get to the other side of them, maintaining our dignity and respect, right? right? If you're burning schools in a library, then you haven't gotten to the other side with dignity and respect. The fact that we have, we're unable to do that in this moment, I think it speaks volumes to how important it is that we ramp up those efforts in the public schools because we have lost this we we're lost our ability to have tough conversations in the public square mm-hmm. is a huge right. problem. And to your point, Melody, about your own family, I think it's appropriate to, to understand, you know, what, what maybe some of our ancestors did with, with some shock and disgust, right? It is, it is appropriate to feel those yes. things. That doesn't mean we need to internalize that as personal shame. And, right. and um, I think that is a, a place for teaching too. Um, helping students understand that the truth of history is very often ugly and it's not flattering <laughs> to, to some groups, but that doesn't mean that children are personally responsible for what happened in the past. It just means that um, we need to understand what happened in the past so that we can avoid it in the future. And we need to know things like didn't know the charter school concept was literally invented within months of the Brown versus education decision. That's you know things, yes. Right? Like yes. We need to know these things that, mm-hmm. you know, I am opposed to school vouchers, but like, I am actually now more opposed to them knowing the <laughs> history. Right. Right. Yeah. They have, they have been a tool for um, preserving privilege, particularly white privilege. Uh, since their inception. So I want to know, I don't know if our listeners know that you're moving on to new opportunities. <laughs> how, how will Stanford schools continue with new leadership? 
Yeah, great question. So yes, I am um, moving on. I'm going to um, head to Washington, D.C., and I'll be um, working as an impact fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. Um, ultimately, I will be doing, um, I'll, I'll be in a communications role with the U.S. Department of Energy, which I'm really excited for. Um, <clears throat> Daniel Russell, who is our deputy director at Stanford Schools, he's been with us for two years, extremely capable. Um, he's going to become our interim executive director and then our board is going to be doing a search for my position. So um, more details to come in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we will have an application opening up. And um, definitely Stanford School's work will continue. Um, I wouldn't have felt okay about stepping away unless I knew that was going to be the case. So um, excited for the search process. It was a really hard decision. You know, I, I thought about it long and hard. And um, I think this is the, the right move for me personally. But um, I'm always going to love Stanford schools and, and be rooting for them. And I would ask folks to, uh, to join us in that. Please, uh, please keep up with what Stanford schools is doing. You can go to stanfordschools.org and join our email list or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and, um, and yeah, keep up with, with what's happening around public education in Nebraska. Melody, you have a question you like to ask before I ask about reading. <laughs> I want to know. I'm just I'm just sitting here like letting your like incredible career just like wash over me. <laughs> this is what's happening right now. Um <laughs> I was like feeling very starstruck. But uh so you know ambitious people that are like I see problems. I want to do something. Um like, how do they get started? What's your advice? Mm -hmm. What's your wisdom to the people coming up behind you? What would you say? Yeah, there's a lot to say. So I'll speak to getting started. And then I also want to speak to endings because I think that's something we don't talk about enough. And since I'm, I'm approaching an ending here myself, I want to speak to that too briefly. Um, so as far as getting started, I think a great way to, to, to get engaged in the type of work I do, if that interests you, and the type of work that Stanford Schools does, start just tracking the Nebraska legislature. Um, you can track bills on the website. You can also watch debate on the website. And I think whatever time you're able to spend doing that, even if it's only a few minutes a day, um, will help you understand how our state works a lot better. Um, and once you kind of start to get a feel for that, if you're so inclined, you can start to weigh in on, on bills that matter to you. So you can do that um, online via the website. Um, if you are feeling ambitious, you can testify at a hearing. <laughs> um, those usually take place starting at 1.30 in the afternoon on weekdays, which is um, <laughs> not convenient for working people at all. <laughs> um, but you know, if you, if you pick one or two bills that really matter to you, I would encourage anyone at some point to go testify at a hearing. Um, I actually did not know this until I started this job. Uh, in, so Nebraska, as we all know, has a unicameral legislature. I did not know that the reason for that um, in, its, in its creation is that the people in Nebraska are supposed to be the second house. So it's the reason why every bill in the Nebraska legislature gets a hearing. That's not true in every state, not true in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> um, 
in Nebraska, every bill gets a public hearing because the public is supposed to have an opportunity to weigh in on every idea that the legislature is considering. So that's really unique and it's really special about Nebraska. And I think it's something to take advantage of. So I would encourage anyone to do that. More broadly, if you're interested in advocacy, if you're interested in social justice, I think, you know, take a look at the problems that you see or the challenges that you see around you um, that get you the most fired up. What pisses you off the most, honestly? <laughs> um, that's, that's how I came to be at Stanford Schools, honestly, in a nutshell. Um, and start to think about, you know, who, who might be doing work on these issues that you care about um, and, and get to know them, whether it's nonprofit organizations in your community or churches or public institutions like schools or government, um, get to know who's working on it. And, and when I say get to know them, I mean, get to know the people, not just, I mean, visiting the website and familiarizing yourself with the organization is great. But if you can get to know the actual human beings who are doing the work day to day, um, then they can help steer you on how to really get involved. Um, and I, I think that's what I'd say. It sounds really simple. Um, it's easy to say and hard to do, but I think it's really rewarding and, and in my experience, always worth it. I would agree about the human relationship building with people that are interested in similar things that you're interested in. Right. And sometimes, you know, occasionally you might find that nobody is doing the work that matters to you. And if that's the case, then it might be worth, you know, either getting involved informally as a volunteer to start or perhaps, you know, starting an organization to do that work. Um, that's how I found my path. And it's not in any way something I planned <laughs> far in advance. Um, it just it just sort of came together and happened. And it, that is possible. So um, I would encourage folks to, to go that direction. I also wanted to speak to endings really quickly. Mm -hmm. Something that I had to um, sort of come to terms with in, in deciding to move on from Stanford schools, because this work will be important for a long time. <laughs> I would love nothing more than for Stanford schools to work itself out of existence. I think almost every nonprofit uh, leader wants that <laughs> deep down. But um, for the foreseeable future, I think this work will be very needed. And so there was a version of the world where I could have per perhaps stayed in this job for a long time. Personally, um, I I'm, I'm tired. And after the pandemic, I'm ready for a change. And I'm ready to be in a bigger city, just, just me personally here. And I think very often our message to young people who are interested in policy, advocacy, or activism is that if you get into this, you not only have to stay in it your whole life <laughs> and you have to always do it because it'll always be a fight. But also, if you are from a place like Nebraska and you have progressive views, um, our message to people is, you know, we need good people to stay or we need good people to come back. And that is true. We absolutely do need good people to stay and we need good people to come back. But we also need people to to come back maybe for a while, maybe for a shift, maybe for thinking about it as kind of a tour of duty. Um, we need people to devote some time and energy to causes they care about, especially in places like Nebraska. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to do it forever. It doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your health, happiness, <laughs> or, or other things that are important to you um, in the long run. And it, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you um, start doing good work, that you always will have to do that. Um, so I would love for us to talk more in activism about ways to um, be involved and then hand off work when we get tired. That's not something that we talk about very well, I think, as activists. And um, it's something that I think we need to, to discuss more and normalize to take care of each other. Um, we're living in very challenging times for a lot of reasons and everybody is dealing with a lot. And um, it is possible to be involved and do good work and also to, to hand it off at a certain point and do something different. So I, I want people to think about that too. I think that's is really important. And, mm -hmm. you know, normalizing this idea that it is not your individual job. Right. To save everyone from everything. Right. It's <laughs> like, right. not your job. Right. Um, you, you can't actually, you will right. die unhappy and burnt out because you can't do it by yourself right. um each of it, us is only one person and and we really only control our own choices and behavior i mean that's really all we control at the end of the day and so um yeah we need to i think as activists get better at um one asking for help when we're struggling and two supporting each other and saying you know what you've been running a really long race tag me in. I'm ready. <laughs> I have energy right now. You know, um, I think that's something we need to, to do better. That happened to me recently. I couldn't go to a bill hearing um, for a topic that I'm usually at all the bill hearings for. And I sent someone yeah. else and I had to really wrestle with my own ego. But I was like, yes. but I have an unvaccinated child and everybody has COVID at the legislature. That's where right. all the anti-maskers are living. <laughs> who don't, you know, like they're not vaxxed and they're not masked. So I'm like, I can't in good conscience go and speak on this bill in person. I cannot do it. And right. I had to send somebody right. else. And then I got a technical piece of the bill wrong, which was mortifying. And sure. a senator called her out on that. And she was super gracious. And she's like, no, Melody, like, it's fine. You know, whatever. Right. And it, but you know, like, letting go some of that is ego also it's yes. just your own ego yes. that you can't let go right it's really hard and it's sometimes hard to know what what's ego and what you know duty right yeah um, <laughs> um but i think that's something that we all need to we need to wrestle with and i'm glad that melody that you put your family's health first i think more of us need to do make those kinds of decisions more often for sure yeah so that was, you know, I just thought like that's, I didn't like let go of the topic, yeah, but I yeah. just did say it can't just be me. I am not the deal maker breaker right. in this hearing is not the deal maker breaker. Like it's okay. These bills, like you're talking about with these education bills, they come back year after year after year after year right. after year. Yeah. You can take a break. It'll be there when you come back and people will either pick up the mantle or they won't. And you just do what you can. You just do the best you can. And I think that's a really important message for everyone. April, what have you got? 
Well, we always ask, what have you been reading or what would you recommend? Um, and I'll throw it in our bookshop. And not to steal your thunder, but I'm going to put in a couple of books by Diane, Diane Ravitch about the history of schools. Yes. Uh, because, like, <laughs> you'll learn a lot. But what do, you, what do you got for us? Yeah, I'm reading How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. I um, want to read that. <laughs> it's it's great so far. I'm I'm still in kind of the early portion of it, but it's about I think the subtitle is Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America. And so he explores, he visits, I think, seven historical sites that have ties to the history of slavery. And he examines how they all present that history. And it varies widely um, from place to place. And how visitors to those sites um come away with you know, what understanding we come away with. It's really well done. Um, the other is called The Woman Behind the New Deal, The Life and Legacy of Frances Perkins. It's a biography of the first woman cabinet member, FDR's labor secretary, Frances Perkins. In reading this, I'm like, how is she not a household name? This is crazy. <laughs> um, basically, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the, the entire idea for the New Deal came from her. And FDR approached her about being his labor secretary. And she said, okay, but I, I don't want to do it unless you're going to um, impose a 40-hour work week, create unemployment insurance, create social security, and you know, a whole list of other things. And he hmm. said, okay, I'll do it. We'll get it done. And she said, okay, then I'll come work for you. Um, she was a social worker by training. She actually personally witnessed the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York City, um, where several dozen uh, workers um, were killed in, in a fire caused by unsafe working conditions, and she spent the rest of her career fighting for worker protections. Um, and it, I mean, her story is pretty remarkable, so I'm loving that book. Great. We'll add them to our list. And it was so great to have you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for what you do. You learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.